and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Evan Zoldan, Professor of Law at the University of Toledo College of Law. We will discuss his article, Corpus Linguistics and the Dream of Objectivity, which will be published in the Seton Hall Law Review. So welcome to the show, Evan. Thanks, Brian, and thanks so much for having me. Oh, the pleasure's all mine. So I came across this paper along with a couple others in the same area on Twitter the other day, and it caught my attention immediately because it's a really provocative sort of argument about something called corpus linguistics, which has been kind of circulating a lot in the sort of legal and legal scholarship community lately. But for listeners who might not be familiar with the term and the concept yet, I wonder if you could start by just kind of explaining what corpus linguistics is. Sure. That's a great place to start. Uh, Corpus linguistics, I'll tell you what it's not, first of all. It's not a particular theory. Um, And although there's some disagreement about how to describe what it is, I think most people would say that corpus linguistics is a methodology or a group of methodologies or tools. And uh, what the tools do is they allow a user to search uh, a body of language data and look for patterns in the body, which is known as a corpus, from the Latin corpus, meaning body. And so corpus linguistics is the idea of, uh, it's, the, it's the method, it's the, the, the methodology of searching for uh, language data in bodies of text. And I'll just add that it's not inherently anything that has something to do with legal uh, research. Corpus linguistics has been around for a long time. But I think the reason why you've been hearing a lot about it is because it's become something um, that is interesting to legal interpreters. They're looking for new ways or different ways or better ways to interpret legal texts. Mm. So maybe you could talk a little bit about sort of like the origins or the source of kind of original corpus linguistic work and why it's become increasingly of interest in recent years. I mean, I understand there's like some kind of technological changes that have been relevant and significant to the sort of ability to use in a practical way some of these potential tools. Yeah, exactly. So I I think that the reason why you're hearing about corpus linguistics all of a sudden is because technology has gotten to a point where it's very easy to put large numbers of texts in a searchable database So it's possible to look for language data and patterns of language use in a way that would have been very hard to do um, before the technology was available. So uh, there have always been corpora, which is the portal of corpus, which linguists have been able to use to look for patterns of language data. But um, when when they had to be searched manually, you needed a lot of time and it was very difficult to compile the data. But now that can be done electronically, you can have people without very much um, uh, effort uh, search huge numbers of, of words, huge numbers of texts uh, very quickly. And I think that's why it's become uh, something that is, that, is, uh, that is potentially very useful and very interesting at this point in time. Um, now, I, I will add that uh, you know, it, it, there are corpora that come from lots of different sources. So uh, Google, for example, can be considered a, a corpus. You can search in Google and return uh, data that will tell you how words are used. Uh, particularly, Google has its n-gram um, uh, uh, set of data. So you can actually search in Google for 
the use of words over time. And Google searches all of the the texts in its uh, in its databases in order to find it. Uh, there also are a series of uh, corpora that are maintained at BYU, and I think those are the ones that have gotten the most attention from legal scholars. Are uh, these set of uh, uh, these set of, of uh, corpora, these set of databases that are maintained by BYU that are available through the web, so anybody can search them. Mm. Well, I think an example might be helpful. So, like, if a scholar who is interested in corpus linguistics wanted to use it as a tool to determine how a particular word or a particular phrase was or had been used, what would they what would they do? And sort of what kind of results would they expect? And what, if anything, could that tell them? Well, that, that's a great question. Uh, what that can tell them, I think that that's really where the rub is. But I'll tell you what kind of uh, what kind of data they get back uh, from a search and what they would do to get that data. And then um, the really interesting part is what can they do with that data, as you suggested. So I'll give you an example from a real case. So the Supreme Court of Michigan um, a couple of years ago had a case in which it wanted to interpret the word information in a statute. And so there's a statute that said um, that the state may not use any information obtained from police officers in a subsequent uh, 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 criminal proceeding against that police officer. And so uh, the police officers in this particular case uh, lied in the proceeding that produced this these statements. And so the question was, is a false statement information within the meaning of the statute. Okay, so what the court did is the court looked up uh, one to one of these databases and it typed in the word information and then uh, it clicked enter and the, uh, the database then spits out um, lines of text. And so what it does, it takes excerpts of all different types of text that are available in the corpus and it shows how that word information is used in context. You can read the sentence or the paragraph surrounding the word that you searched, and it'll give you a sense of how that word is used. And so in the case of uh, that I was just talking about with information, uh, the court determined that uh, it was more frequently used uh, with words that uh, uh, connoted um, uh, either accuracy or inaccuracy, truth or falsehood, than it did with just truth. And so the court concluded uh, that um, the word information uh, could correlate with either truth or falsehood. Truth mm. statements or false statements. Mm, mm. Well, and so is that kind of use in a legal context consistent with what scholars in a purely linguistic context, context would do with, uh, with, with corpus linguistics? Or like... I kind of wonder like about the relationship between the field as something that's happening kind of independently as something that linguists and scholars in that area do, as opposed to its kind of operalization in, in a legal context. Right. So I think that is exactly the question. So what does all this tell us about the meaning of statutory language? And I think that is the question that I'm trying to address in my paper, which is, irrespective of whatever use this might have to linguists, right? Linguists may be able to answer all sorts of questions by doing a search in a corpus. 
that does not necessarily mean that uh, lawyers and judges and other legal interpreters are going to be able to use it in order to find out what the legal meaning is of a text. And that's really what I am most focused on is, uh, is it appropriate to use these types of databases and these types of searches to try to figure out what legal meaning is or what statutory meaning is in particular? And that's really the focus of my paper is statutory meaning. Mm. So to the extent that lawyers, judges, and legal scholars are trying to use corpus linguistics in a legal context, what what problem are they trying to solve? Like, what do they see as the issue that corpus linguistics at least potentially might help us do better or do more effectively? Well, as, as far as I have been able to discern, the uh, argument for using uh, these types of databases to, to determine statutory meaning uh, runs something like this. Uh, sometimes we need to figure out what the ordinary meaning of statutory language is. What can be more ordinary than words used in non-legal texts, like the type of texts that are found in these corpora? Therefore, if we search in the non-legal texts found in these corpora, we will be able to determine ordinary meaning for the purposes of statutory interpretation. I think that's the basic syllogism that uh, is, is the, the operating assumption that justifies using uh, corpus linguistics. And, and that is, uh, that's what I'm writing about is whether or not that, that syllogism is justified. Mm, mm. Well, so, but why can't I just read the text and understand it as an ordinary speaker? I mean, what's the problem with that? Mm -hmm. Well, from the perspective of the, uh, the, the proponents of corpus usage, they would say that by doing so, you're relying on your intuition. And I think they would critique the idea um, that legal interpreters, including judges, have, uh, have, have uh, intuition that properly reflects ordinary usage or that properly reflects uh, the most frequent usage uh, of, uh, of words. So in other words, um, every word um, can have different shades of meaning in different contexts. And so if you are looking at, say, the word tangible in a statute, for example, um, you might have the intuition that tangible means just anything you can pick up and touch. Uh, or you might have the, the, uh, the, the intuition that it means, well, no, that means records or uh, papers or those kinds of things that you can pick up and touch. And whether or not the word means the, the first meeting or the second meeting uh, can affect the outcome of a particular uh, decision. And I think the proponents of corpus usage would say, we can't just rely on your intuition uh, to sort out which is the, the correct meaning there. Mm, so this is where the objectivity then comes in, in the title of your paper. I mean, it seems like in a sense, the idea or the concern is that if I just read the statute and interpret it in a way that makes the most sense to how I conceptualize language, then my interpretation is going to reflect language in the way that I personally use it, as opposed to sort of the way that it's used in a sort of abstract, objective sense. And that in theory, maybe corpus linguistics could, could encourage or enable decision makers to arrive at more objective readings of statutes? Yeah, I, th I think that's exactly right. The underlying concern, if you read the 
the uh, literature from the people who are uh, proponents of using corpus linguistics for statutory interpretation, there's an underlying concern that uh, legal interpretation um, can be idiosyncratic or that, that judges or interpreters can cherry-pick results, uh, they can cherry-pick the sources that they use, and they can end up, uh, even if they are not trying to do something willfully wrong, even if they uh, are acting in good faith, they might end up with an idiosyncratic interpretation that uh, does not reflect uh, what they would consider to be the ordinary meaning or the most frequently used meaning of a word. And so with that being the concern, um, the proponents of corpus linguistics tend to think that um, that use of, of, of corpora, when done correctly, can um, lead to more objective results. And by that, they mean things that are uh, replicable and verifiable or falsifiable. Mm. So, I mean, it does seem like the idea of objectivity and predictability in relation to reading statutes is uh, sort of a good thing or potentially a good thing, something we ought to encourage. But in your paper, you express some concerns about whether corpus linguistics can actually help us reach that goal. And sort of one of the initial concerns relates to sort of the subject matter of the study itself, or rather of the corpora that are used to do this analysis. So sort of what corpora are actually used by people who are trying to operationalize this in a legal context? And what's the problem, as you see it, with using those bodies of text? Yeah, so that, that's I think that's a, that's a great question, and so um, there are a number of different types of corpora that exist, but uh, virtually exclusively, if not exclusively, uh, users of corpus linguistics uh, rely on what are called general corpora, right? And a general corpus um, has uh, has non legal texts in it. These are not corp- corpora filled with uh, statutes or regulations or even court cases, they are just filled with things like magazines, uh, novels, newspaper articles. Some of them have movie scripts. Some of them have poetry. Some of them have collections of websites uh, ranging in subject matter from uh, cricket to fashion to video games. And so uh, you are looking at a, a at bodies of text that um, are most definitively non-legal in nature. Okay, and I think that corpus proponents would consider this a uh, a virtue. They would say, "Yeah, that's how people talk. They talk the way they talk in, you know, uh, in newspaper articles and magazines, and that's what we're trying to capture." So um, I I think that that is a problem if what you're trying to do is interpret statutory language because uh, statutory language is definitively not the same thing as poetry, movie scripts, or even newspaper articles or novels. And that's really what I focus on in my paper is trying to figure out, um, are these things uh, the same in a relevant way? That is, is, is statutory language the same in a relevant way as the type of language found in a non-legal corpus, including like I said, websites and transcriptions of spoken text and um, and magazine articles and websites and things like that. Hmm. Well, I, I got to say, like, I mean, as a former lawyer, now law professor, I mean, it certainly does seem like 
the way that we use language in a legal context is not congruent <laughs> with how we use language in a non-legal context. I mean, it's almost like a sort of running joke that lay people don't understand what lawyers are talking about. Yeah, except it is a an entirely... Uh, it's not a caricature. It's absolutely true. You know, and um, you only have to think back to first year of law school, which is largely a foreign language lesson or vocabulary lesson. And you learn that there are words like uh, claim and discovery, which you thought you knew, but they mean something totally different in the context of the law. Or words like consideration or utter, those have meanings in legal language that they just simply do not have in non-legal language. And so um, if you are trying to figure out whether or not a statutory term uh, uh, means the same thing that it means in a, in a magazine article or, or a novel, I think the answer is going to be very often not. Um, but I, I would go on and I would say it's not just a matter of individual uh, words having different meanings. It's the entire structure, the entire... Uh, syntax, all the conventions of statutory language are just so different and measurably different than non-legal language that what ends up happening is if you just start to cherry pick one word or two words from a statute and try to find that those same words in a novel, you are simply not going to get any of the statutory context that gives those words their meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it really struck me when I was reading your paper this afternoon, because I was just teaching an intellectual property class earlier today, and we we're talking about patents. And like, one of the things that I feel compelled to do in the class is to like have the students read through actual patent claims, and then like, translate them into English. <laughs> right? Yeah, because it's not because they're not in English. Uh, at least they're, yeah, they're, they're in they're in something yeah else. they're they're in patentees right? right and like you have to like sit there and try to understand what is trying to be like what the drafter is trying to accomplish and what it is they're actually saying and if you read it literally it just comes off as almost gibberish right it's i i think that's exactly right and um the only reason we don't notice that all the time is because over the past however long you've been a lawyer for, you're, you've gotten used to uh, to reading and thinking like that. And so I think it's hard even for us to notice how different legal language is. But uh, it's, not, it's not really up to us. We don't have to be the only ones to think about it because people have been studying this for a long time, right? Um, it is well documented that uh, non-lawyers simply do not understand legal language. People have done studies of jurors many, many, many times, and they found that even when juries jurors think they understand um, the jury instructions, they simply don't. Uh, mm -hmm. Another example comes from the context of legal translators, right? So uh, a legal translator uh, can't just be someone who is fluent in both languages. They have to be fluent in the legal systems of those languages. Um, people have noticed that legal language, because it's so complex and highly technical, um, legal translation is something totally different than translating novels or or um, uh, or newspaper articles or things like that. Uh, in, in fact, I'll, I'll just go on that uh, th there is an entire, uh, both in America and elsewhere, plain language movements, right, that are dedicated 
to uh, to trying to make statutory language into something that regular people can understand it because they simply don't understand it. And these, like I said, these are all measurable differences between uh, legal language and, and non-legal language so that um, I, I think at a certain point it becomes uh, it's an exercise in futility to try to look at non-legal language to get a sense of what legal language means and certainly statutory mm. Well, I think it might be helpful if you could like give like a tangible example of how courts have tried to use these sort of non-legal corpora to help them identify the meaning of particular statutory terms and how you think that might have thrown them astray. I mean, you gave an example previously, but sort of maybe like you present so many in the paper and I think they're really interesting and helpful to sort of understanding why this isn't as easy a fix as some people seem to want it to be. Sure. Um, right. So, you know, there's an example from the Supreme court of Utah, which I think is, is uh, fascinating because it, it, it bothers me on a regular basis, this particular example. Uh, so the Supreme court of Utah was interpreting the word uh, custody in a federal statute, okay, and um, the, uh, the the judge that was uh, and it was in a concurrence that was adopting the corpus methods uh, tried to explain why um, it, it could use corpus linguistics to interpret the word custody, and so the judge went through and examined the way the word custody was used in the statute. And concluded, not surprisingly, that it was a specialized legal term that had a legal meaning, right? And that is not surprising. You would expect uh, a, a word like custody in a comprehensive statute about uh, the, the parental child kidnapping statute that, uh, that it would have a specialized meaning. Nevertheless, the judge in this case then looked in a corpus filled with ordinary non-legal language um, to determine what the meaning of the word custody is. And so I, I think that that uh, creates this, this mismatch between what you are looking for, uh, which presumably should be the statutory meaning, and what you're going to find. Because when you look, in, when you look for statutory meaning in a non-legal language-filled database, you're going to get the non-legal meaning of the word. Um, and uh, I guess I'll just, just add that I, I don't think that um, it's just a couple of words here and there. I really think that um, the special legal nature of statutory language pervades statutes. So it's not a matter of just saying, well, I can look through a statute and pick out the words that are legal sounding words and words that are not legal sounding words. I think the entire statutory text is because of its, um, because of the word choice and syntax and grammar and conventions, it is something wholly different than statutory language, uh, meaning, oh, sorry, wholly different than non-legal language, um, making it, it uh, I think, virtually uh, impossible to find statutory meaning in non-legal sources. Mm. Well, so if the problem is using non-legal corpora, why can't we fix it and make corpus linguistics effective by just using legal corpus, right? I mean, like, you know, like, why not just use a ton of legal documents? I mean, I don't know. There's like a lot of text in the CFR, right? Like, why not just rely on that? So um, that, that's a that's a great question. Uh, I, I I've heard some 
suggestions from from some quarters suggesting that well we can just come up with a legal a legal database if we need one a legal corpus if we need one. Um, there are a couple of reasons why I think it's not going to fix the, the problems that I've identified in my paper uh, with the ultimate subjectivity of the process, and I'll just give you a couple of examples. Um, you know, you mentioned patents earlier, right? And so, uh, obviously, um, when you talk about a claim in the context of patents, uh, you mean something very specific, right? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. So, the word claim has a legal meaning in the context of patents. It has a wholly different legal meaning in the context of civil procedure. Mm. And it has a wholly different meaning in the context of government contracts. Uh, and so if you were trying to figure out the way that corpus usage would suggest what the, uh, the, 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 the most frequent usage of the word is, uh, it really is not going to get you very far to search in a legal corpus because all that's going to tell you is um, that there are at least three distinct meanings of the word um, uh, of, of the word claim, for example, uh, in legal usage. And you're still going to have to do the hard work of legal analysis. And I think that's really what this is all about here is, is what problem is this trying to solve? It's trying to solve a problem that I think we can't solve, which is we need legal interpreters to exercise judgment. And I think that uh, corpus linguistics is attractive to uh, to people, to some people, because it uh, holds out this promise of uh, of binding binding the interpreter to the mast, you know, limiting their discretion, making sure they can't go off and do something uh, that is that is wacky and uncalled for by the law. But I think ultimately the problem is that legal interpretation requires a level of, um, of, of, of judgment and discretion that cannot be eliminated in the way that, that I think corpus usage uh, suggests is possible. That's really interesting because it's like, you know, it, it does seem like there's this desire to have a kind of objectivity, like a kind of a word should have one meaning and only one meaning, and it shouldn't have a malleable meaning, and everyone should know what the meaning is, and it should be clear to everyone involved. And yet, it really does seem like at a certain level, there has to be some sort of judgment. And like calling it subjectivity sort of seems to miss the point in a way. It's like, that's where the law is actually happening. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. You know, I, I alluded to the Yates case before when I was talking about the word tangible, right? So going back to the Yates case, um, uh, the the court noted in the Yates case, all of the different times when the same statutory term, either in the same statute or in two different statutes, means different things, right? And the court collected a whole long list of cases. And I think that was a really helpful um, paragraph in the Yates case, because I think what it does is it demonstrates that you can't mechanically just look to see uh, which is the most frequent usage of a word and say, well, that must be what it means in the statute. That's not the way that we do law, and it's not the way that we can do law, and it's not the way that we should do law. Um, and so, I mean, it gets to your question of what, what exactly are we trying to do here? Are we trying to take the judge out of judging? And I think if that happens, that's, uh, it's not possible. Um, and I think it would be a real loss, uh, to the law if we, if we do attempt to do that. Uh, but there is this idea, I think out there that, um, what we ought to be doing is, um, removing all of the, uh, all the discretion, all the subjectivity from 
the interpretive process. But I think as you just sort of alluded to a second ago, that's what the law is. It's the application of a legal principle to a particular factual situation. And uh, if you try to remove that, then you're no longer doing law, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, so Evan, in in closing, I mean, I, I feel like you've marshaled some pretty compelling criticisms of the way that corpus linguistics has been used by judges in particular, but maybe scholars as well. I mean, I wonder if you think that it has any value in the law. I mean, you know, even if even if corpus linguistics has not been and maybe can't be uh, effective to do what people are claiming they want it to do or believe it can do, are there areas in which it might be useful or provide lawyers, judges, legal scholars with information that would be helpful to sort of achieve real goals and real substantive goals and understand statutes better, understand the law better, apply the law in a more consistent way? It's a really good question. I I think what I would need to see in order to answer that question um, is somebody try to put together a a corpus that that took into account the differences between legal language and non-legal language. Because I think until that is done, um, I would have to say that there's there's not going to be a lot of value in searching in a database of non-legal language for statutory terms. If somebody were to say, okay, you know, I, I, I get it. I take that criticism on board. Now let's try to come up with a, um, a, a legal corpus and design it in such a way that can overcome some of the concerns that I mentioned about um, uh, having multiple meanings and multiple different legal meanings. Then I think we would be on the next stage of this conversation where we could try to narrow it down. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen uh, anybody try to do that. What I've seen is um, you know, only people skipping over the kind of the first step and going straight to the conclusion that, oh, yeah, a non-legal database is the way to go. Um, so I'm going to have to say I, I don't know if there is any uh, where to go from there, right? So I, I think if, if someone is committed to um, using a database of non-legal language, I don't see a way that that can be used profitably. But like I said, I'd be open to other iterations uh, that might be a little more sophisticated. Mm. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Evan. It was a real pleasure talking to you, and I really enjoyed reading your paper. I hope I hope people will check it out. There's a lot more in there that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Thanks very much. I really enjoyed this. Nitty gritty hole